Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Holcomb Bear. Holcomb is the lead, the senior lead investigator for Reliability Center doing root cause analysis. So I'm excited about this one because we're going to take a deeper dive into root cause analysis. So Holcomb, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Rob. Thank you. No, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, like Bob Latino, he he kind of put us into contact to, and we had him on previously to talk root cause analysis. So I'm excited to take a deeper dive into it. Yeah, a little bit more of the, uh, the hands-on versus the theoretical approach. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't, before we get into it, why don't you just give us a background about yourself? So how'd you get your start in maintenance and reliability? I actually started in construction of a uh, large paper mill project and that evolved into operations and uh, then into uh, to maintenance. It wasn't until I got to a, a photographic products company that uh, I had a boss that was into what he called uh, maintenance excellence and uh, went through a lot of training and that really cut my teeth into how all of the components work together as far as you know fixing things, but also uh, monitoring things and planning things, you know, using a uh, maintenance management software and using the you know the technology that's out there to really get a good read on on the equipment's condition. Uh, from there, it just uh, you know kind of fell into consulting, uh, working with the uh, the Virginia State Department of Transportation for their uh, uh, tunnels and movable bridges in developing a maintenance program for them. And then naturally just right in here to the uh, Reliability Center and uh, working with them for root cause analysis. Like with Reliability Center, you, you do a lot of root cause analysis or like big root cause analysis for large, I guess, large failures that have happened. Do you want to give us a little breakdown of like, how many do you do a year? Like, what's that process look like? Of course, it it always depends upon uh, our our clients' needs. Basically, I'm called in when when they have something that's that's pretty big. That you know, we we teach the methodology of doing an investigation. We we also market a, a software application when they feel that they are kind of above their level. They call us in to help facilitate. Uh, an analysis. So it can, I mean, generally it averages about uh, four or five a year. Awesome. Yeah. And, and that's like, 
So, you know, like we talked about, you mentioned a little bit, it's above their head. So I guess a few of those criteria, right, was one of them that you, you mentioned was over $100 million and the other one has a, like a serious injury. Do you find that that's kind of the most common things that, that you're looking at or just like either huge impacts in production costs or some sort of fatality or serious injury? Yeah, usually it's the, I mean, most, most RCAs, as you know, are, tr- are, are actually the result of a trigger that uh, I call it that it got, it got above their threshold of pain. Um, so yeah, certainly fatality is, is one, um, dependent upon the company and the, the magnitude of the impact. It's the, it's the financial impact. Um, actually had one uh, that came in this last, last quarter was there wasn't any financial impact. Their operations continued, but it shut down all of their instrumentation and monitoring to where they were majorly at risk. It was a pipeline, oil pipeline, that they couldn't sense if the pipeline was leaking. So they were they were reacting from the standpoint that we had a critical systems go down. We need to figure out what caused it to go down so that we don't put ourselves at risk. Yeah, that's a great one, actually. Really great one. So when, you know, like when you get called in, like, how does that work? So you show up, have they cordoned off the area? Like, obviously the first step of proact is preserve, right? So is that how that works or, or are you just kind of showing up and hoping that they've done the steps that you want them to? It, it kind of depends upon the event. Sometimes, yes, things, uh, this, what you're talking about with this hundred million dollar, uh, loss. Yeah, they had, they had sort of preserved everything, but they were still, uh, they had photographed it and they had done their initial preservation of, of the data themselves. Um, other times you come in there, it's, it's kind of after, well, most of the time when I come in is after the fact. Um, and just depend upon what the culture of the, of the company is as to how much they have preserved. But usually these are our clients. They know the deal that they, they've got to preserve the data so that the data is preserved how well it's preserved or the extent of the amount of data that's preserved. That's what I am usually going. My first step is to go in there and see what do you have? What do we need? Basically, I kind of look at it. Tell me what happened. That's what I'm that's what I'm there for. First of all, it's just what happened. Find that out. And when you ask that what happened, are you asking it to multiple people or you get a bunch of people in the same room and ask that question? Like, how does that process look? Usually, you know, there's a there's a central figure uh, that's your point man. Um, you talk to them first, and then uh, as you as you start piecing it together to figure out what happened, you bring different people in to tell different parts of it. Um, and it there's no for me, I found that with you know each client you go to has their own culture and approach to problem solving. So to come in there with a with a rigid set of rules saying you must do this in this step, you're going to get backlash. But if you if you come in there and say, okay, what have you got? What happened? Let's let's piece this thing together. Um, you know where you're you're working with them as a team. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I I find that also with any sort of reliability project is like you really have to work within their constraints or culture. Yeah, and that's part of what when you get your feet on the ground there. That's what one of the things that I'm trying to do is to understand their culture, 
I mean, every place you go into has their own set of language, of vernacular, abbreviations. And when these guys are talking to you, they're rapidly giving you all kinds of information because they want to download to you to figure out what happened. But that's why I, I talked to kind of the point person to find out, you know, what is the language I need to understand? What is the terminology? Get, get me familiar with your equipment and your process. Also, usually when by the time I'm called in, I've had enough time to, to, to use, um, you know, web searches to figure out what the process is, to learn a little bit of the terminology. Because, I mean, I'm not a petrochemical engineer. I, I started off in paper making. So if I go into a paper mill, I'm, I'm pretty up, to, pretty versed with the terminology in a paper mill. But if I go to a power generation plant, I'm not an electrical engineer. And I've, I've got to bone up on, on what the terminology that they use. Now, like how much of that terminology do you need to know? Like, obviously you need to know enough to communicate the same language, but you don't really have to get into the whole process, do you? Depends upon what the problem is. I mean, usually at the beginning, no. But as you drill down into things, you, you start finding out, I need a little bit more expertise. A lot of times you can find that within their organization that you can, you can go to their internal subject matter experts. Sometimes you have to go out and, and find subject matter experts and a lot. And of course, now with the internet, you can, you can source a lot, a lot of information there as well. But uh, depending upon what you find on the internet, it, it doesn't always, always make sense or may not be applicable to the, to the situation that you're in. Absolutely. And I guess one thing I wanted to ask you about. So when, when Bob and I were uh, in Memphis together last year at the SMRP, he mentioned that a lot of companies like the triggers are sort of regular regulatory requirements. So it's like their insurance requires any failure over X and Y this, you have to like, they have to call somebody in or for safety purposes. Do you find that they're doing it just to fulfill the requirement or are they actually bought in on the process? It depends upon how well the reliability culture is within the organization it also depends upon what the magnitude of the the impact is. Um, of course, with a with a hundred million dollar loss of an asset, uh, you've got uh, insurance as well as government regulations. This was in a in a foreign country, so there is also a a potential. In in this case, it was just loss of equipment. But if you have a, a loss of life or injury, there's Usually in a, in a lot of uh, foreign countries, there's a criminal investigation by, by a, a, a government police organization. Um, insurance, uh, depend upon what the injury is, whether it's OSHA, and then that brings in, if it's in the United States, if it's an OSHA involvement, usually the company's got their legal counsel there as well. So what you find is uh, certain guidelines that you've got to stay in between to keep all of the parties happy. Um, the, certainly the, the operators of the equipment or the, the managers of the, of the operation don't really want the insurance company to know what they were doing. Uh, they want to make sure the insurance company is going to cover the claim. Kind of the same thing with, uh, with, with an incident involving a, a fatality or an injury. The company may not, uh, they want to, they want to vet or make sure that their, that, that their image is protected from the standpoint of, uh, and to minimize what, what OSHA could come down to them with. 
So how do you balance kind of what the customer wants you to deliver versus what actually happened? I think you can, I mean, what actually happened is factual and no one's going to say lie about that. What's interesting I find is, is, is not what you say in the report, it's how you say it. And what I mean by that, I mean, if you, you know, if you've done any writing or, or, or reading and kind of from a grammatical standpoint, the nouns in your, in your writing are the, are the facts. I mean, it's a, it's a piece of equipment or, or whatever. Um, actions are fact. But when you start getting into intention or descriptions, your adjectives and your adverbs, those can change the dynamics of your report. Uh, I mean, I had I had one one example where, um, you know, the piece of equipment was destroyed and I called it a catastrophic failure. They didn't like that. They just just call it a failure. So you 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 it's it's more of how you describe it as to, you know, and you can you, you can slant your dissertation to say to to give someone an image that's really bad or you can give them and that's not I don't think that's really taken away from it but it is from a standpoint of of protecting the company uh the image is 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 something you need to keep in mind Absolutely and I, I guess so when you go to site and you know you you've you've kind of gotten the like you've gotten a feel for what data they have and what they've preserved what's your next like what's your next step after that so you, you kind of start just trying to dig into it more or how does that work yeah absolutely i mean you i kind of you look at the what i call the cracks it's kind of like getting into a, a, a if you want to say opening an oyster to find the pearl you don't start at the hardest part of the shell, you, you find the cracks, you find how you can wedge in. It's, and um, we usually term those as anomalies, the things that don't make sense, the things that need to be explained more. Um, and that's, that's what allows you to peel away the layers. Uh, it's, it's finding those cracks and wedging into them. Um, so you're, you're kind of taking it from what happened to understanding how did it happen? What was the, the sequence of events? that led up to it. And those cracks, like, can you give us an example of something that we could look for? Well, if you've got two reports, we had, we downloaded data from the PLC. We downloaded data from, um, from another piece of uh, some other instrumentations and the engineers looked at them and they gave their reports of what they thought happened. The sequences didn't match. One said that, uh, one device tripped, and then the then the other device tripped. But the, the two other reports said that the second device was the one that tri tripped first. So how could you have that? And that's what that would be a crack that you would dig into. Once we looked at it and understood what had happened, now we were able to get them all to make sense. Now, when you're like when you're digging into the root cause itself or root causes like one thing we talked about previously was that you got to really make sure that you get into the latent causes instead of just stopping at the human cause or the physical cause so do you want to give us 
a breakdown of like, how do you know you've made it to the latent cause? And, and like, how do you, you know, not just stop at blaming, you know, somebody for making the wrong choice? Well, we talked a little bit about going in there first and understanding what happened. And then we talked about digging a little bit further and understanding how did it happen? What were the decisions that were made or the sequence of events? I think the last thing you're really looking for is why was it allowed to happen? Because a lot of these things that turn into catastrophic events, uh, even even for a piece of equipment failing, the machine always growing up around machinery, it's already screaming at you, telling you, I'm having problems. I'm having problems. And, you know, the people that, you know, I listen to what my automobile tells me. And when I hear noises, it's telling me something. And so it's why was why were these signals ignored? Why were these behaviors continuing? Why was it allowed to happen? And that's that's what we're talking about with latent roots. What's the culture that's going on that either didn't detect it or even heard it and didn't react to the early signs that could have you know could have stepped in and prevented the um, the event from happening or at least reduce the magnitude of it? That's what you're really going to me. That's what that's what I'm really going after. Yeah, and I guess one thing is like when you find these failures. Uh, of big magnitudes, like most of them don't have one cause, right? Like most of them are kind of that Swiss cheese model where you have a bunch of things that happened that lined up to make a big failure, right? Oh, exactly. I, I mean, the, the Swiss cheese model is 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 pretty neat because it it is, I mean, it kind of graphically shows if you've got these different barriers, how could something have made it through those barriers? That's that's basically the description of, you know, why was it allowed to happen? But if you look at it, if you look at each layer of Swiss cheese, um, you know, the, the one way of looking at it is, well, why didn't you plug the hole? But another way of looking at it is, why did you drill a hole there? Um, you know, that's a lot of times these holes appear uh, with a change in process or just uh, or, or a uh, reduction of cost and they create a hole. So that's, yeah, I like I like the Swiss cheese model as as a way of of looking at the the levels or the latent uh, factors of of how could a problem uh, have been allowed to have happened. It's actually really interesting that you mentioned drill a hole. Like I never thought that that was a thing, but it's kind of interesting. A little bit different way of looking at it because most of the time they think that the holes are there and you need to plug them. But there's uh, in a in a manufacturing world, in a company culture, it's dynamic. Things are changing all the time. And when you affect one thing, you can change something else. We actually use a depiction that uh, has all of these uh, what we call error and changes. Every time that you make an error, you change something. It affects something. Uh, you know, the, the laws of physics for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's that's factual. So when you when you're in your dynamic system and you make a change, you make a, a, a an improvement or a policy change or you change a set point. You've you've affected something else and you have possibly created a new hole. And I, I think people don't realize that they think everything, every change that they make is for improvement. 
This is why you, you find, and in, in two of these cases, um, part of what, when we dug into the latent roots, uh, what we found was their management of change process was had holes in it. And one of the biggest holes was that the assets that they were managing had been given a low level of priority or criticality in their, their asset criticality studies. So the management of change didn't put didn't place high enough priority on maintaining the integrity of the equipment. Now, when you mentioned that they, they didn't put a high enough criticality, was that the like the the criticality analysis problem? Yes. Yes, it was it was it was how they, they because part of it is when they did the analysis, they didn't understand how critical that device or that that section of the process was. Yeah, I found that throughout my career in in doing some criticality analysis is you often find things that you wouldn't necessarily, like just off the top of your head, you wouldn't think that were critical that actually come out as extremely critical. And a lot of that is they, people read a word and they have a concept of what that word means, whether it's alarm codes or in this, in one case, it, it had to do with UPS system. They they thought the UPS system was was a backup that just kicked in. They didn't realize that the entire power of that facility went through the UPS system. <laughs> you see the difference? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. <laughs> so, I guess one thing that I kind of want to I kind of want to ask you about is, and like Bob has bounced this around on LinkedIn a few times, but. What qualities make a good RCA facilitator? I think they got to come in open-minded. Um, I like that. I, I had the opportunity two years ago to hear uh, uh, Krista Tippett uh, speak, and one of the they were someone had asked her a question of how do you conduct your interviews? You know, how do you make them so good? And her point was, she says, I go into an interview not anticipating what answers I'm going to get. I go into the interview expecting to be surprised. So I think when you, you know, and I thought that was interesting because when, when you go into an investigation, I like taking that, that word of wisdom from her to say, I go in expecting to be surprised. I want to uncover something unique or something different, not what I expect to find, but to be surprised. They, so you have to go in with an open-mindedness. You have to go in being inquisitive. Um, so I think that... That part of it, then to bring in the expertise in the analysis process, the, the steps you you mentioned preserve. It's making sure that you you know how to order your t- or to get together an organized team, and then how to conduct the analysis through a logical step by step. You also have to be organized. You're going to get a lot of data coming in, so just putting it into a file folder. That you you know you see people with stacks of paper trying to find it. You've got to know how to label them and how to track your documents so that you know what to find when you want to find it. And then also from organizing is organize your timeline of your sequence of events and keep referring to that. And because the sequence of events, the timeline doesn't lie, and things happen in order. Time is a constant. And and you keep you keep updating that, um, and that's going to that's going to sort out the the fact from fiction. 
so that's that's kind of I mean, it's the open mindedness, it's the inquisitive, it's the the logic. Those are those are the attributes that I think are important. Not necessarily technically competent uh, on a specific subject. That tends to blind you. But if you are just know enough to be able to ask in questions and let the other people fill you in, that's what really brings it to light. It seems that like not knowing enough or or being the super expert of a piece of equipment, it seems like that comes pops up a lot when we talk in reliability, you know, like if you're facilitating RCM or you're facilitating criticality or root cause analysis, like all these things, I think that's part of the, like it, it takes away your open-mindedness. I think so. Because it normally, if you think of it, how did they get to be a subject matter expert on a particular piece of equipment? They've seen it, they've done it. They, they have this history with them. And they utilize that history to answer this problem with something that happened before that was similar. Um, but that doesn't mean they need to be excluded from the investigative process. It's be, you, have to, you have to work with them to say, let me, let me tap into that knowledge and utilize that knowledge to tell me what are the possibilities. We we were called up to a uh, to a petrochemical plant, and they had a guy there that was a PhD in uh, metallurgy. He understood the process, and he didn't just look at it and say this is what happened. He went up on the board and he wrote all the ways that this metal could fail, and then he knew to go back and say, okay, we've looked at it and we've proved this or disproved this, we've disproved this. And he told us why. He was a subject matter expert, but he didn't reach a conclusion until he had laid all the facts out and all the possibilities. He knew, he was the expert and could lay all the possibilities out of how this, this piece of metal could fail. Then he went and talked to everybody there to say, bring your data and let's see what, what is and what isn't. That's a true scientist. Yes. <laughs> now, when you're doing these facilitations, like, are you bringing in people from, you know, the environmental group or people from the safety group? Or is it is it just dependent on what what exactly like what the failure was? It depends upon what the failure is. And most of the time, it's, it's almost like it's, a lot of people, engineers, and I'm, I'm one of them. Um, think that the solution or getting into the solution is linear. You just you just get your shovel and you just keep digging, digging, digging deeper, deeper in the hole and you'll uncover what happens. I think it's it's more of almost a uh, um, random wandering where you go to this spot and then you go over to this spot, then you wander over to here. And as you go through it, uh, I guess the one way to visualize it is think of trying to solve a huge crosswood puzzle. You've got all these clues, but you may work on it in one area and you don't just work at it from the upper left-hand corner down to the bottom right-hand corner and say you finished it. You, as, as you go, you fill in what you know, and then you look at what you don't know and figure out where do I need to go to get that answer. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And, I, and it's something that I like about you know, the software that you guys have is it gives you 
like you're you're building a path, but it gives you the ability to cross off things that you've considered and then make sure that you've actually considered at least, you know, a wide amount of of different possibilities. Yes. It also this was one thing when when I worked on this this large equipment failure, one of the uh, programming engineers, he was putting together the timeline and he really got a he had a lot of problems because he says a lot of this is not linear. When he saw the logic tree, his eyes lit up. He says, this solves my problem because I can show multiple paths that connected. And with the linear timeline, I couldn't show that. Absolutely. So I guess I guess I got a couple questions before we wrap up. And, and the one of those, like they're both going to get into good practices for root cause analysis. So the first one is, you know, what are some common mistakes that you see people make when they're doing root cause analysis and how can we avoid those? One problem, well, one thing I think that, that I see from a, um, that I've seen in, in my experience is either they feel that they've got to, as far as the RCA team, they've got to put everybody that has an opinion or has an involvement or has an invested interest on the team. Keep the team small, three to five people. That's your core. That doesn't mean that those are the only three people working on it, but that's the people that are in the boiler room that are critiquing the data and putting together the report. Um, the other is, as far as a, a takeaway, I can't emphasize enough the timeline. Just p whether you, however you want to put it into Word or a logic, uh, I mean, a uh, Excel spreadsheet, but really get a good sequence of things that happened and and document them, not with what the intentions were or what they were trying to do, but just that they opened the valve, not that they tried to empty the tank by opening the valve, but they opened the valve, that the tank drained, but just the statements of facts, of actions, of, of change, change, status change, and things like that. Once you do that, you can start to overlap different accounts and get them all to line up. And where do those intentions go? You utilize the intentions, you save them in the, in the, in your um, interview statements, but where they go is you start to get an understanding of what the operators or what the people doing the actions were thinking. Then that tells you, was it a training issue or was it a, a deliberate act of sabotage or was it the, um, you know, was it something else? Because a lot, I, I say this a lot, when you, when you look at someone that makes, you say, they made a mistake, let's blame them. Instead, look at it, why did they think that what they were doing was correct at the time that they did it? Because I, I say that most people don't come to work saying, you know what, I think I'm going to blow up the plant today, or I think I'm going to shut down the process today. I just feel like that's a good thing to do. No, people want to go to work to produce the product and they want to come home safely and they want their coworkers to come home safely. So they, they are not there to intentionally make an accident happen. So if you understand with the intent a little bit more of what they were thinking that prompted them to do the actions that they did. Yeah. I mean, have you even ever seen a deliberate act of sabotage over your career? In my career, yes. 
just once or how many, uh, like a few times? Uh, only one that I can recall. There was, and it, it's funny, the, the timeline, when you started investigating it and looked at the timeline of their statements, it didn't collaborate and you could start to see uh, what was going on. But I mean, one over your career is pretty low percentage, right? <laughs> yes, yes. It's not out there. So I guess, I guess my last question for you is, you know, we kind of, you kind of touched on a little bit on the, what mistakes you make, but what are your top tips for people who are listening, who are going to do an RCA? If you have anything in assumptions about how it happened, write them down and then don't look at them again until you are ready to finalize your report. The problem is, if you, if you go in there saying, I know what it is, you're going to bias yourself going in. And I've seen it. so many people look at these uh, these reports or I give them a preamble of, of what what the incident was. Oh, I know what did that. Immediately, everybody jumps to that conclusion. And I have to tell them, no, that's not really what happened. And so that's I think that my biggest takeaway is is is, again, don't go in with any preconceived solutions. Don't go in with any preconceived idea of how it transpired. Go in. I'm looking here to understand what happened, how it happened, and why it was allowed to happen, and then let the chips fall where they will. And how do you like? Do you have any tips on maintaining an open mind when you're like? Obviously, you've done a lot of root cause analysis, so you may have seen certain failures before. Now, how do you make sure that you just like leave those at the door? That's tough because you. You want to blend in a little bit of knowing what your experience is, but from the standpoint of more of keeping it to the process. A lot of and what I th- I think a lot of times you see with with companies you can draw on what the latent roots are because the latent roots are usually I mean they're fairly I won't say common, but there are some basic things that are out there that. Uh, the companies fall short on, you know, making sure that the equipment, that their, that their processes are clear and concise and understandable, that their communications are good. These are all how people that define the culture of the company. But understanding the process and how it happened, uh, go in there expecting to learn the process. Don't go in there expecting to be the boss to say this is how the process should be working from a, from a manufacturing process standpoint. But the process of analyzing the data and collecting the data and asking the interview questions, that's that's what you need to hold on to. Yeah, it's yeah, that's the key, right? Like that's what makes an expert, you, you know, is is understanding that process and really being diligent in that process. And sticking with it. Yeah, being being diligent and, and disciplined in, in the process. Awesome. Holcomb, I, I want to thank you for joining us today. I, I mean, uh you know, I learned some things. I think it was a good discussion. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Um, do you have any plugs? Like obviously people who want to hear more about Reliability Center can go to reliability.com, but are you going to be at any conferences coming up in 2019? I am not. Uh, my my schedule is mostly with uh, providing services to to our clients. So I'm uh, involved in in training and, uh, and investigations. So I'm not scheduled for any, any conferences this year at least as as the clock stands right now. 
<laughs> well, are you going to be putting on any training courses for us? If you go to our website, you'll see the uh, we, we have public um, training that's done here in Hopewell, Virginia. I think the next one coming up is either in May or July, something like that. And uh, we've, we've got them uh, placed throughout the year. It makes it kind of convenient where, you know, for companies that want to send one or two people or even up to three or four, they're not having the, the major expense of uh, trying to get 10 or 12 people together for a for me to go out to them. So it's, it's an opportunity for, for people to just to send a couple of ex, a couple of their designated people in uh, to to get experience. Plus, it allows them to to kind of cross industries with the with with other students that we have here from uh, from other companies. So you didn't get the you weren't the lucky one who gets to go to Trinidad. Uh, that's still up in the air. That's a possibility. We'll see. <laughs> that's the dream one. Yes. All right. So actually, so if anyone wants to connect with you, should they connect you with you on LinkedIn or is there some other way that you want uh, people to reach out to you? Either through LinkedIn or through our, our website of reliability.com.